all over the, the world this morning. In Jewish homes, men have started the day by taking out a very unique garment called their talit or their prayer shawl. The history of this predates Jesus and I think as we begin to look at this particular garment, it has an awful lot to teach us. Because what we want to do, just for a little while this morning, is look at what we might call the fringe benefits of our faith. And let's explore them, just for a little while, but let's look at the roots of it first of all. If you were here last week, well, we were starting to look at the book of Numbers. Because fundamentally, if we're going to get a grasp on what's going on in the Bible, we need to listen in stereo. So we were tuning into the Exodus event, the preliminary stages of the journey through the wilderness. Tonight, we'll come to look at how the book of Hebrews, addressing a first century Christian audience in the first, well, particularly Hebrews 3 and 4, takes us back to the wilderness to teach. But let's stop, rather than get the big picture for a little while, just tune in to one little incident and one little part of the book of Numbers that talks to us about the fringe benefits. Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. Now remember... In the Bible, as Jesus would have known it, this book wasn't called Numbers. About two years, two centuries before Jesus, uh, one of the Ptolemaic rulers down in Egypt commissioned a translation in the Greek of the Hebrew Scriptures. And when they translated it, they started, they said, well, with typical sort of logical Greek thinking, they read the first chapter, it's about counting, it's about a census, so they called this book Numbers. That came down in Latin as arithmoi, arithmetic. But neither of those names actually reflect what's going on in the book. In the Bible, as Jesus would have known it, it was called in the wilderness, Bamidbar. So we're out here in the wilderness. Now, as it were, all the trappings are stripped away. This is a place where you learn. It's as if God takes them out because he's going to give them an intensive series of lessons. And he's such a master pedagogue because he's not just going to teach them verbally, he's going to impact what they eat and what they wear. So let's look at this piece of sartorial pedagogy, if you will, teaching about what we wear. Numbers 15 and beginning at verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments, with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them, and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and your eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands 
and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So tucked away there in this desert experience, God's going to teach them. And he's going to teach them in such a practical way. Look particularly at the verbs in one particular verse that we're going to use as our foundation this morning. Particularly, look at the commands where you see at verse 39, there are sort of three imperatives. I want you, God says, to look, I want you to remember, and then I want you to do. This is where you see a master teacher at work. Because as you come through these opening books of the Bible, you discover that having made people, God teaches through every sense that he's given. He's this remarkable teacher. And his educational skills, well, they were pioneering in their own way. He appeals to sight. He says, look. And you can't go through these opening books of the Bible. For instance, you'll never ever begin to get anything of a handle in the book of Leviticus unless you use all your senses. There's so much to see, to touch, to smell, to taste. All of these things to hear. They're there. But combining that with the memory, he involves the intellect because there's something here to think about. That's built into the fabric of that imperative, remember. And then there is the acting out of what you understand. This is what makes, you know, when we, we come to, to look at this combination, it's very hard to prioritize these. It's very hard to put them in any order. But if you were to put them in any order, the first thing in biblical discipleship is obedience. Then comes the understanding. We're an incredibly sort of post-enlightenment society. We've been influenced by René Descartes, by Cartesian thought, and it's basically, you know, cogito, or I think, therefore I am. That's crept into sort of evangelicalism. Make it reasonable to me, make it rational, prove it, then I'll go and do it. So you've got Josh McDowell's evidential proofs. Here's all. Here's a heap of books proving Jesus' resurrection. Here's a heap of books proving Jesus' deity. Why don't you believe? I'm making it rational and reasonable. I'm appealing to your mind. That may have its place, but I'm not sure that that's the biblical way of thinking. Opposed to that sort of Cartesian way of thinking, you come back to the foot of Mount Sinai and Israel responded to God, we will do and then we shall hear. Now remember, the ear was the seat of understanding to the Jew. So the understanding came in the course of doing. So doing and understanding, well you get this combination in, in James as well. But it's built into the fabric here. He doesn't separate the intellectual from the practical. They're all bound together. And the first word God says, as he begins to teach them is, well, you put these tassels on the corners of your garments. Now, remember, in the ancient world, and, and there's evidence of this, it's taking us away back into at least the third millennium before Jesus. We begin to see that the hem was often much more ornate 
in comparison to the rest of the garment. Now remember, in the ancient world they were wearing, I suppose the closest we can get to it today is something like what we see Bedouins wear, what we see Arabs wearing. You know, long flowing garments. You don't see a lot of skin exposed to the sunshine. They're long and they're flowing and they're open. And in the ancient world, often the hem was ornate. And on the hem, often tassels. And as we look at these tassels, the more important you were, the longer were your tassels. That you would walk and you would have them trail behind you as a sign of, you know, as you'd see the person walking past you and not quite their train, but almost like their train coming past you, you think, wow, they're important. They're somebody. And when we come to look, we see the evidence of these type of tassels on many garments right down into uh, sort of ancient, even ancient Egypt. You see the tassels here at the corners and at the hem of the garments. This was a mark of sartorial elegance. It was a statement of how important I am, where I stand in, in society. And this was, in a sense, the symbolic extension of the person who wore them. It's a bit like in the ancient world when you sent your signet ring with someone. You were actually sending your power, your innate authority, along with the emissary. You remember at one stage where in the book of, of, of Esther that Mordecai is given the ring of the king. Joseph, when he's elevated to a position of prominence in Egypt, is given the Pharaoh's ring. Because when you're given the ring, you're given the power of signature. Hence, you know, the roots of our idea of a signet ring. It had the stamp that gave the inherent authority of the person who normally wore it. So when you gave your ring away, you were extending your authority. So the tassel was like an extension of your authority. You could pass it on in occasions to your emissaries. And in the ancient Akkadian Empire, when you come to look at the history of the ancient Near East, you discover biblical revelation was given against the background of the unfolding revelation of, of several major empires. This is why I encourage people, explore the background of the Bible and you see that it's inconceivable to think that this is just a little word, a little thought for the day. But it's a book that's giving us instruction in God's revelation that spans centuries. It's not given in an intellectual or a cultural vacuum. And as we come to look at this ancient world, we see that the ancient people called the Akkadians actually spoke of cutting off the hem of someone's garment. Now, with that in mind, come with me to the book of Samuel. We even the reading at Samuel, at one stage, remember, David is actually fleeing from King Saul. David is hiding with some of his men in a wadi called En Gedi. You can still visit En Gedi. Not that terribly far from the Dead Sea, the shores of the Dead Sea. And punctuating, like pockmarks down the side of this actual wadi, there are lots of caves. Some of them very deep, like this one here, up the wall, up the side, where, well, we read, David and his men were sitting deep, deep in the cave. Deep in the darkness of the cave. And then we read, 
Saul came in. Now the English versions are ever so polite. The English versions say he came in to relieve himself. But remember, Saul would have been wearing a long, long garment. What the Hebrew text tells us, that Saul came into the cave and his garments were gathered round his loins. Now when I was at primary school, Saul was in the cave to do what they used to call a number two. Oh, we don't talk about that in church, but sure we don't. No, because you see, in church, we've bought in at times to such a Greek, Western, dualistic way of thinking that church is only to do with the spiritual things, the sweet by and by and the heavenly, and there's nothing about the earth in it. And so we don't talk about these things. And, you, and I don't mean this in any way indelicately or irreverently. But you almost have in the West conjured up this idea that people in the Bible never went to the bathroom. They just weren't real people. They were so super spiritual people. It becomes unreal. <coughs> These were real people. And, and there's something at times, and this is what's refreshingly honest and earthy about the Hebrew Scriptures. This earthiness, this practicality. So Saul is in the cave and his garments are gathering round his loins. He's concentrating. <laughs> now what do we read? That David sneaks up behind him and cuts off the hem of his garment. And you're thinking, how could anybody come up behind me and cut round the hem of my garment and I wouldn't notice it? I have the best Marks and Spencer's double stitching. But what if Saul was wearing a garment, a long flowing garment, that had the tassel? And David comes up behind him and quickly off comes the tassel. He's not out with the scissors going round the double stitching. He cuts off the tassel. And remember immediately after that we read David is stricken with remorse. Why? And David comes and he appears before Saul and we read, See my father, and he holds up the corner of your cloak in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your cloak and did not kill you, you may know for certain that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are hunting me to take my life. David probably then, if you, if you go up in Gedi to this day, you go up that wadi, it's an extremely deep wadi, but a narrow one. So you could have stood on one side of the wadi, king and the other, and held this up. You could have talked to each other, but had no access to each other. And remember Saul's immediate reaction? We read in the next few verses, Saul says, now I know that you shall surely be king. David had taken the symbol of the royal authority. 
It's against this ancient Near Eastern background that we come to see something just of the symbolism and the importance of that one action. David, struck by remorse because he knew he had taken the symbol of the king's authority. Saul, standing and taken aback because now David held the symbol of kingship and the symbol of his authority because that zitzit, which is the the name for it, the tassel, is the extension of the king's own authority. Do you know in this ancient world a husband could actually divorce his wife by cutting off the hem of his wife's robe? Today, the tallet or the prayer shawl is normally worn only by men. But there does seem to be evidence that in the ancient world, they could have been worn by women as well. And even as the first century church emerged, there some would suggest that in the early synagogues and in the early house churches, even the women may well have actually worn these. But the symbolism, back to the ancient world, symbol of divorce was cutting off the hem of the garment. When you wanted to make your signature in a legal document or a commercial document or a transaction, you could take the tassel and dip it in to actually the clay tablet. That would be baked and that would become a symbol that was your signature because the knots on the tassel were individual. They were as unique as you are, the way you would tie knots. Incidentally, if you go online today, you discover today in Jewish Orthodox circles that they can tell what group or what rabbi a person belongs to by looking at the distinctive way they tie the knots on the tassel. And of course, as there's right ways and wrong ways of tying knots. And people will reject each other depending on how their knots are tied. Now, that type of thing, looking at the way knots were tied, that would never happen in Christian circles. Sure it wouldn't. Do you ever sit along the seafront in Port Stewart on a Sunday night? Well, they go to this church. They go to that church. And you're still, you've never got below their ears. You're just looking at their haircuts. (laughs) By the time you get down to the hem of their skirt, you've really decided where their theology is. But you see, the rabbi, well, this is some of the the pettifogging legalism that can go on and it can creep into Jewish thinking. But let's not think that Jewish thinking has a monopoly on legalism. Because so often, the best of symbols can be taken and twisted and distorted. But there was a significance here. Even in the ancient world, sometimes exorcists would take the hem of a person's garment, because it was so peculiarly theirs, they would take it and they would use it in their healing ceremonies. Ah! The pennies are clicking, aren't they? They're dropping. Because in the ancient world, a request that was accomplished by grabbing after the fringes of somebody's garment was one that couldn't actually be refused. Do you remember what the Gospels tell us? Wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and they begged him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak. 
and all who touched it were healed. Do you remember that woman? She'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. That wasn't just physically uncomfortable for that woman. That had meant socially and religiously she'd been ostracized for 12 years. No man could touch her. No man could sit where she had sat. She couldn't move into the synagogue. She was an outsider. She was constantly subjected to the status of being unclean. It may well have been that she came from the area around Tiberias. In that western coast of the Sea of Galilee, you had the biggest concentration of sick people in the ancient world. You had also the biggest concentration of quack doctors. For 12 years, maybe she had tried many doctors. She had been to many consultants. We told in the text she had spent much money, but she had got no results. But then she heard about this remarkable character up round the, bit, up round the corner of the sea. It wasn't terribly far up to Nahum's village, Capernaum, Capernaum as we call it. And there was this wonderful healer, but getting through the crowds to get to him. When we come to look at that woman, I, I know she's dressed up as the, in a sense, the paradigm and the paragon of faith in nice, neat, middle-class, respectable churches today. I think that woman was an incredibly bold woman as a courageous woman. Because it's used the word faith, but there's a word that's used in Jewish circles that maybe captures the nature of her faith better than any other. It's a word called chuzpah. It's almost a cheeky boldness. It's a faith that has a boldness that would press through the crowd and reach out and touch what in social terms was untouchable. Nobody touched the hem of your garment. That was the extension of you. For a woman, a woman subjected to this outpouring of blood for 12 years to touch the hem of this man's garment, it was an incredible bold step. And yet, what was at the heart of that woman's faith? You know, if you trace the word familiarity back to its Latin roots, familiar to family, here's a woman who's being the ultimate in familiar with a man. She believed that if she touched this, he would regard her as part of his family. And he wouldn't repulse her. Do you see the boldness in her faith? The boldness that meant breaking through social and religious conventions to touch out to Jesus. The crowds would have kept, Jesus, kept her away from Jesus. The conventions of her day would have kept her away from Jesus. But there was this incredible, unorthodox boldness where she reached out and she touched what was virtually inconceivable. It was untouchable. The symbol of his authority. And remember, he felt the power had been taken from him. That's the nature. Look at the nature of that relationship. There's so much there that could be explored. So there's a richness to this idea when we come to explore it. You see, the traditional tassel was virtually the ID, the identification of the nobility. It was that for Saul. David recognized it. So Jesus, remember... I never cease to be amazed. You know, the number of it. Jesus is a Torah observant Jew. 
This is the type of clothes Jesus would have worn. Jesus never was in a church in his life. Jesus never sang a Christian hymn. Jesus never read a New Testament. Jesus was growing up in this world of synagogue-going, Torah-observant Jews. This would have been part of his daily wardrobe. And if we're going to begin to understand him in that sense, we need to be prepared to come back to school with Israel. Not because we want in any way to idealize Judaism, so much of modern day Judaism is a development of post-70 AD and it's rabbinic Judaism, but we want to understand the context of the world in which Jesus moved so that we can relate to him with more understanding. But look at one other thing about this, this passage. Do you see where it says that you must have a blue thread? This is the interesting thing. Look at the end of verse 38. Your corner of your garments with a blue cord in each tassel. Now, if you look at this one, and you're welcome to look at it afterwards, there's no blue thread. For since about Roman times, Jews haven't been able to wear that blue thread. But the blue came from a little snail called the murex, the murex trunculus. And to make this blue dye, it took at least 12,000 of these snails. They broke into the shell to get to the little pituitary gland and would extract the blue dye for 12,000 to make a thimbleful of this dye. This was expensive stuff. By about 200 BC, one gram of this dye was about 63 pounds or about 36,000 pounds. We find that by 300 AD, dyed Sidonian silk was about 73,000 pounds per pound. Now do you understand why Lydia was one of the richest women in the world? The richest woman in the Bible. She sold dyes. It's her that gave rise to names like royal blue, royal purple. There was money in this. And again, doesn't that dispel any notion that evangelism was just done, done among the down and outs in the ancient world. Here's this woman, one of the richest in the ancient world. But why the blue? Because in, woven into the tassel of every garment, there was the blue to remind the people, well, who wore blue? The priest. Particularly the great high priest. And remember back to Exodus when God says, I'm bringing you an eagle's wings to myself. I'm going to make you a kingdom of, of priests. And there's a richness to this when we begin to explore it. So look, see its history, see its color, see the imagery. And as you look, then remember. Because what am I trying to teach you through this? Well, as one of the rabbis said, today, mostly prayer shawls are only worn when men pray. But actually, one rabbi caught on very well where he says, in my opinion, one is more obligated to wear the zitzit when not in prayer so that one will remember not to go astray and sin at any time. For in the time of prayer, one will surely not sin. So the idea was, if you look very carefully at these verses, why will you look at these? When you look at them, you will remember to obey all my commands and you will be consecrated to the Lord your God. These zitzits were to remind you of God's instruction, of God's Torah. Now, when we come to look at this word Torah, there's one word that suffered 
foully at the hands of English translators. It's been translated as law. But actually in Jesus' world, Torah did not mean law. When you look in Hebrew, every word comes ultimately from verbs and from three-letter verbs. And the word, the verb behind the word Torah was actually a verb that meant to fire an arrow. So the original idea behind Torah was firing something in the right direction, guiding it. So the idea of Torah is to give guidance, instruction, direction. God didn't give us five books of the law to impose on us some pharisaic, fundamentalist legalism that's dominated by downright joyless negativity. He gave us instruction or direction. And at the heart of that direction, he wants your life to be straight. It's straight like an arrow. He wants to fire our lives. That's why in Proverbs 1, my son, I want you to listen to the Torah of your mother. Mothers want their son's lives, their children's lives, to be on target. Do you know to this day, I was doing this somewhere a few years ago, and a guy came to me. Are there any archers here? Not everyday country folk now from the BBC. But an archer came to me. That's a bow and arrow archer. And he says, you know, Desi, in professional archery today, an arrow that falls short short of the target, it's called, the technical name, a sinner. See, sin's not just about things you do wrong. It's also about a life that's missing its goal. It's off target. It's not living up to what God intended it to be. So what the Lord is saying here is, you know, as you wrap yourself, oh, this becomes quite irresistible. Now, let me tell you a little bit, and this is not biblical, but I guarantee you won't forget it. Some of you might know the answer to this. How many commandments are there? Now, if you know the right answer, don't tell me. Give somebody else a chance. But how many commandments are there? Well, what's the first number springs to your mind? Ten. Do I have any advance in 10? <laughs> any advance in 10? Do I hear 12? Two. Oh, two. I, well, uh, two. Oh, I know where you're coming from. That's very good. That's very clear, but it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> How many are there? In Jesus' tradition, if you tap into that Jewish world, when you read from Genesis to Deuteronomy, you counted six. 113 commandments. Now, when a man, well, when we come to look at this, we discover that these commandments are something that are at the heart of Jewish thinking. When a man wears this in the morning, one of the important statements is remember who we are. Because in rabbinic thinking, as the Lord wraps his creation in the heavens, a man is to wrap himself every morning in the Torah. Because if we begin to think about it, now, I say this is not biblical, but there's insights. If we were to count up the numerical symbolism, and there's... Jews are quite into numerical symbolism at times, you would discover that the numerical value of the name of the zitzit, the numerical value is 
613. But, you know, as our great Ulster thinker, Jimmy Cricket, says, there's more, there's more. In ancient rabbinic thought, how many bits and pieces are there in you, in your body? Now, I know modern medicine will poo-poo this, but ancient medicine taught you were made up of how many bits and pieces? Yes, you're wise. Enjoy the work with sharp people. <laughs> much more intelligent than you look. <laughs> but think about it. What is happening in Jewish tradition every morning? I take the 613 parts of my body and I wrap them in the 613 commandments of your instruction and I dedicate my mind and my heart to you every day. Now do you begin to understand why the psalmist can say, I delight in your Torah. I love your law. Because he's discovering the joy of who he is and remembering. Is this where Paul gets his idea, remember in Romans 13 and Colossians, about putting off the old man, putting on Christ? That dress image where we discover he's robed us in his righteousness. He's robed us in his perfection that we look in as we look at each one of these tassels. We remember the Torah is something we look into. It's like a mirror. And as we look into this mirror, the image, yeah, that's where James gets his idea. We look into this image, we're to remember who we are. We are to remember the God who liberated us. But then one final aspect of this. Because as we wear this in Jewish tradition, as we remember what God has done and remember who we are, we're then called to observe in numbers. The word to observe, well, it's related to a word, commandment. In Jewish tradition, it's called a mitzvah. Now, that could become a legalistic term. I recognize that. But on the other hand, Rather than the pettifoggy legalism, what we discover is when it's properly understood, then listen to Abraham Heschel. In a world that recognizes the biblical worldview, emphasizes the doing, the Greek, the post-enlightenment, Western world, emphasizes the intellectual, the knowing. Ultimately, there should be no antithesis between the two. But in the West... We've become very cerebral, very intellectual, very mental. The biblical emphasis is on the doing. And when we begin to discover it, well, listen to Heschel, to an outsider, the mitzvot, the commandments, they may appear like hieroglyphic signs, obscure, absurd, chains of lifeless legalism. But to those who want their lives, to tie their lives to the lasting, to the Lord, the mitzvot are an art. Pleasing, expressive, and full of condensed significance. God's teachings given, not to be some oppressive legalism, to rob us of joy and put us onto some fundamentalist legalistic tightrope, but to say, here are the tracks. I want you to run smoothly with me and know me. I know you cannot work for your salvation, but you can work it out. There's no notion that even in these opening books of the Bible of Israel ever working for their salvation... These instructions are given to a people who remember what God has done in the Exodus. 
He has taken the initiative. He has taken the step to set them free of Egypt. It's given to a liberated people. Now again, just as, as we, we finish, think, think stereo. We don't observe the book of Numbers today. None of us as men or as women, we, we don't wear the talit. But what has God done for us? What are the fringe benefits today? Well, because of what Christ has done, he has left the ultimate pedagogue in our midst, the ultimate teacher. <coughs> and where the Spirit is at work within us, God has written, remember in Jeremiah 31, he's written on the blackboard of our heart. He's written, he's internalized these instructions, this teaching for us. So that as we read into the mirror of God's word today, we're called to remember who we are and we're called to do, to live out, to act out the reality of his commandment. So when we come to look at this, we see its value in the ancient world. But don't we see the even greater challenge? You see, I can take this off. Incidentally, this is much too big for most Jewish men to wear. So today, in most Jewish circles, after they've prayed, and before they go out, they put on the little talit, that they wear just over their shirt so that you'll see the sits that's hanging out. Think of what God has done for us when he put within us, not in our backs, not in our wardrobes, but in our hearts. He wants to write his instruction, his direction, that we might read and remember and do and walk out the reality of this faith. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, when you, we think of such visual lessons that you give your people, help us to see the truth that you're getting at. That we don't walk with you simply by external gestures or formality or external show, but you want to write these truths in our hearts. We pray that your spirit will equip us in holiness. And that as Nigel joins the ranks of the elders here and joins others who have the responsibility of walking in godliness, may we have the sense of your spirit guiding us and directing us and enabling us to live out these realities. But you just don't want to clothe leadership in your qualities. You want to clothe all of us in the garments of your salvation so that we may cover our own unworthiness by the perfection of Christ, that we may live in a dark world to your glory and the good of others. Dress us with your glory that we may live out that reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.